0: Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of It's Easy Sun. We were on a break for Black History Month, and we ran a number of episodes for the month of February. Every day in the month of February, we ran an episode, and the feedback has been phenomenal. And what we're trying to do here, as I say many times before, is to have guests on that their journeys, their stories, all different, all unique, but they have inspired others, and today, getting back into this month of March and going through the end of the year, it's a good way to restart everything with new episodes with a good friend, not only friend, I'll say family. Mister, mm-hmm. uh, My namesake, Gerald, Mr. Gerald Chen Young, a gentleman that I've come to know over the years, um, a friend, a colleague, one of the smartest investment professionals I know, a gentleman that I've spent time working with, um, His family, his extended family, is close to to mine as well. So over the years, just been a fruitful relationship. Him, his brother, his sister, his aunts, his dad, his uncles, you name it. We, we, we We have spent time together, Thanksgiving, you name it. But today, his story is one that I would like to share because his journey thus far and the impact that he has made in his career and what he does to this day. Is something that I think is worthy of us sharing, and I'm so humbled that he'll join us today. So, without any further ado, I'll welcome to the podcast this week my dear friend, Mr. Gerald Chen Young. Gerald, how are you, sir?
1: I am fantastic, uh, Gerald. And as you say, this is like a family conversation. Yes. And I wanted I want to commend you on the series that you've started and uh, the beautiful episodes you've pre- um, 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 broadcast. And I strongly encourage you to keep it up. Yes, really, yes. Really inspiring, very inspiring.
0: Well, thank you for that, sir. And the encouragement I get from you, your brother, um, and your your family members uh, on social media, texts, and everything is fuel for what I'm trying to accomplish here. So I know you've probably heard some of these episodes before. We have one hour. But as I said to you off air, we could easily run two to three hours. So we'll find a way to fit it into an hour, but I'm just gonna get started by asking the usual open-ended question. You know, who is Gerald Chin Young, his early years, his his family, his growing up, and what undergirds the man that we see today that's doing the things that he's currently doing?
1: Right, so um, I was born in Washington, DC in the summer of 67. I moved to Jamaica, our beloved uh, homeland, on my first birthday. So the 23rd of August, 1968. I grew up in Jamaica through O levels, as we say, under the British educational system, which I know you took as well. Um, uh, Then I went to boarding school in Canada. And I'll fast forward in the interest of brevity. I did my undergraduate studies in Washington, DC. I did graduate work in England. I did graduate work in Canada law, and uh, I also had a stint in, in France. So I've, I've studied economics uh, at great schools, right? American University, the LSE in England, York in Canada. And I read law at the Washington College of Law. And then I had a stint again in France on a very personal note, which I know you know about.
0: Yes, yes, we'll, we'll get into all of that. But knowing you and your family and all that you guys have accomplished, um, there was a grounding there what was what was family like uh dr chen young and your mom i never had an opportunity to meet your mom but what was family like growing up
1: we were a very close family and still are as you intimated earlier daddy being chinese jamaican had a certain work ethic and zeal that he instilled in all of us and mommy was uh, no less hard-working but she had a balancing effect on all of us through her personality and her savoir-faire. And I hope that uh, in the three of us, you mentioned my brother and sister, you see the culmination of both that work ethic and um, savoir-faire.
0: Absolutely, we, we do see that. The work <laughs> ethic is there, definitely, and the savoir-faire as well. I'm not, a, I'm not a French, so I, I hope I got that right. Perfect. But as, as I look at, as I look at your, your family and the close-knit family, the work ethic and all that is there, it's a very close-knit family, extended mm-hmm. family as well, cousins, uncles, aunts, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. But what, what undergirds all of that? If I was to ask you what undergirds that, what would, what would that be?
1: <clears throat> I suppose I would say, I would answer in two ways. One is the promotion and promulgation of us, meaning as Jamaicans
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and Haitians, mommy was Haiti. So the, we are a Caribbean people and we're proud of that heritage. And we have assimilated in different countries, including here. And we continue to hopefully exude those values in the interest of um, bettering everyone we come into contact with mm-hmm. and learning from them as well. Yeah. Uh, And the second thing I think that undergirds me is the drive to excel in fields that are somewhat esoteric. And by that I mean, um, I remember when I was studying, for example, I never wanted to just do general economics. I'm just giving a simple example here. Mm -hmm. I wanted to find a field that was somewhat specialized that I could develop real specialized knowledge in. And the field that I chose Was the field of monetary and financial economics. Mm. And ever since uh, those studies culminating with law, I I have worked in that field and I hope I've done reasonably well.
0: Uh, I I think you've done reasonably well in a number of fields and we'll we'll get to that in a minute. What was, but you and your siblings are what I will call scholars. Mm -hmm. Um, Academics is a given. But it's not necessarily just purely academics, it's academics and the gravitas around academics. Mm-hmm. The three of you exude that, um, n- not only in just your everyday existence, but the, the papers on the wall, the degrees, and all this kind of stuff. But what was the driving force behind you seeing economics? What was your early school life like grade school, kindergarten, coming up, moving to Jamaica at the age of one? and that Caribbean Jamaican experience in an in an educational aspect. What was that like?
1: I would say in a word, it was pluralistic. I started my education at a a Hebrew school in Kingston, Jamaica called Hillel Academy. I went to a rival school of yours, your alma mater, a (laughs) Jesuit high school. I then went to a Scottish um, uh, Protestant school, Presbyterian mostly, and so on. So pluralistic in the sense that I drew on the different energies from these different religious backgrounds. And if you m- copy that or marry that with the work ethic, you're looking at the, the end product in a way, mm. not just in me, but in also in my brother and sister.
0: Yeah. So if I was to ask you then, what was your favorite subject in, say, kindergarten? What would that be? Oh, wow. <laughs> Or, or, or high school, because you are so grounded in economics, monetary policy, investments, the markets, capital markets. So one would make the assumption that math or something to do with business is what was the anchor that kind of grabbed you. Is that,
1: is that a fair assessment? It is. But if I had to hone that even further, I would say it is reading mm. languages. Mark Twain famously said, a man, and I think he meant a person in the modern era, a man who doesn't read has no advantage over a man who cannot. And I have never, I don't remember when I read that, but I've I've lived by that. I believe that we have a duty uh, to study, to study hard, and to do it in a non-abstract way, meaning theoretical knowledge is one thing. And to go to your question regarding economics, As I aged and read more and got more immersed in the discipline, I was drawn more to uh, the workings of global markets, for example. Mm -hmm. I was a big fan of multilateral institutions like the bank, the World Bank and the IMF, uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, which we work with in Jamaica and so on, Um, uh, CERN in, in Switzerland. I was drawn to these sorts of multilateral programs where I could express my readings and my love of the subjects that I read. Wow! So, so Gerald,
0: and you had that inclination from such a young age. Mm-hmm. Wow! So, so <laughs> I'm sitting here. I've known you now for many years, but I didn't know that that this bug was in your ear from such a young age. And that was true—just your love of reading, expanding your mind. Yes. Uh, Now that tells me why you like to do crossword puzzles so much. (laughs) The the, the Daily Washington Post, that that, that competition we had, who would finish first when we worked together at UNCF. So after grade school, so coming up through the the kindergarten ranks and Hillel and and all of that, how how did you start saying to yourself, this is what I want to do? Because later on, we're going to touch on your, your journey to France which is totally separate and distinct from this. So just coming through high school, what were some of the, the, I don't don't wanna say cultural, but things happening in school, the social aspects of growing up in Jamaica, tying it to school, tying it to that work ethic. How was that that for you uh, during, say, your teenage years coming through?
1: Um, I did a podcast with a great lady um, who's the CEO at Manetta Group. And um, she, we've become very good friends. And we did this podcast, I want to say, in September last year, September or October. And uh, I reminded her uh, of something that daddy told me once. And it's, he, he published it in his biography, which I'm sure you've seen or read. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an inscription that he read on a Belgian in a Belgian cathedral on the wall. It said, very quote, and I quote now, there's always more in you, end quote. Mm -hmm. Meaning, when I work, uh, when I endeavor to do something, I consider that task to be something like an asymptote in mathematics. If you remember an asymptote, the function y equals one over x will never touch the axis.
0: Mm -hmm. No matter
1: what figure you put in for x, y will never be zero. Meaning it's closer and closer and closer to the line. And I consider my work ethic, my work energies, my efforts to be asymptotic in that sense. Meaning when I hand in a, an assignment of some sort, whether I'm publishing on LinkedIn or I've been asked to co-author a paper, even when I hand in the final draft, something inside of me says, Gerald, it could have been a little better. It right. could have been more, yeah. it could have been more. So there is that zeal in me uh, that suggests there's always more in you. And I attribute that to dad and the balancing effect that mommy gave.
0: That's, that's very interesting. So I, I am, I'm learning a lot about you just from that, your are thinking now, because whenever you did something, you'll always say, Gerald, take a look at this. What do you think? And then you'll add more words or you'll delete something. or you'll, So that is just ingrained in your thought processes around all that you do.
1: Absolutely. Wow. Even in the work which we have done together over the years. Yeah. Uh, you, you, we, we have seen it.
0: Yeah. So after high school, then you, you ended up into your, your secondary or what we call post-secondary mm-hmm. education. So this this drive and energy around capital markets, economics, that was just enlivened even further because, you know, you, you went to the LSE, you went to American University, obviously very top notch institutions in Washington, D.C. and in the U.K., so just coming out of high school, that hunger and passion for this line of work just stayed with you? Or was it just a natural transition to the next level of developing your mind around this issue?
1: I think it's somewhat in the DNA, my DNA. Hmm. Um, as I mentioned to, um, to Ethan, Ethan DeWitt, uh, the former, the, 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 um, the CIO at Manetto, uh whom conducted the, the podcast in, in, in the fall, um, it, it's it's in my DNA. I I can't point to one thing about it. It's it's just who and what I am.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'll ask you. I'll challenge you a little bit right here. So given all that you have done up to this point in the conversation thus far, mm-hmm. and you know we we grew up in Jamaica, and we can look back now and say, okay, these are the things that I did in my youthful years. But we're several generations removed now from the, the what we call the high school or, or grade school, kindergarten, whatever. If you had your druthers today and had an opportunity to speak with some of the young folks, because that's what our podcast is really about in Jamaica, about the disciplined work ethic and what it takes to matriculate, if you will what what would you what would you share with them just say they're from all socioeconomic backgrounds on the island what what word, words could you share that will you know inspire or touch
1: them drive and dissatisfaction with mediocrity wow. i remember yeah. in my, one of my former positions uh, i was assigned an intern to work with me and His intern happened to be, speaking of the Caribbean, the West Indies, happened to be Bajan. And I drove him very hard. I wouldn't say harshly, but hard. And he got to the point where someone in the organization said to me, you're being too hard on him. You need to take it easy on him and so on. And this person was not from the Caribbean. So they didn't understand the dynamics and relations that we have in the West Indies. And I'll fast forward the story to get to the point. That student entered into an internship program in one of the the largest banks in the world, a Mm -hmm. Dutch-based bank, one of the largest in the world. You know the bank, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, It was ING. I can say it publicly because it is public. And it's public because that student, when he finished the program, wrote a note to the organization thanking them for having me work with him and i let you know in the worldwide internship contest, he won. He won? Won.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. So, so do you think that same type of, I wouldn't say, is that, is that, would you consider that tough love? Or would you just consider that caring for someone? Because not everyone would receive that type of leadership or instruction or pushing the same way. Mm-hmm. But is that necessary, do you think, for, for success and whatever success is defined as, mm-hmm. but for people moving to the next level? And the reason why I ask the question that way is I believe you're right, is that I use the expression with some of the young folks that I mentor, is that you want to avoid the quagmire of mediocrity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and But sometimes the sacrifices that you or I would make like moving your family to another state, another location, going and putting yourself out there for others. That's not necessarily natural to a lot of people, mm-hmm. but in your opinion, do you think that that is actually a, an, an, an ingredient
1: that is necessary? I think it's a, it's a component. I mean, at the core of what you're mentioning is your relationships with people mm. at the core At the, core. And that student, as hard as I pushed him, when he finished the program, went online and publicly wrote an acknowledgement for the drive that I. But I, didn't say, I wouldn't say that I gave him, but just this notion of not accepting second place or mediocrity or anything of the sort, and especially as a minority, mm. we have an added duty as minorities to go a little bit further, rightly or wrongly. I'm not passing judgment or casting aspersions on anyone or any institution, but as minorities, and especially as in, in the context of the US, immigrant minorities. Mm. Right? Yep. We yep. have a, a, an incumbent duty, I think, to, to drive a little harder. Mm. So that drive, Gerald, your, your
0: corporate career, you've been at some of the largest investment banks in the world. You've been on desks on Wall Street, the whole nine yards. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like for you and how did that shape you for where you are today?
1: So when I finished my postgraduate work in economics, I had to choose when I finished the master's program uh, on scholarship in Canada after the LSE. I had to choose between a doctorate or something else. And I chose law so I could marry economics with law. And I always thought and had the instinct that the pairing of those two disciplines, law and economics, would work well together. Mm. I called it the the union of the rational person, which is the fundamental building block of all of economics, right? The, the, The supposition that we are rational agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, the union of the rational person with the reasonable person, which is the analog in law, right? Mm-hmm. The reasonable person is the building block of most Anglo-Saxon Western law. right? I thought that that union would work well. Well, when I worked with, let's see, first it was Payne-Weber. No, no, no. First it was the Riggs National Bank. right? Then Payne-Weber, then the Swiss giant UBS and so on. I got to see that union in action. Mm. I got to see in my study of markets, in my analyses of uh, portfolios and so on, I got to see how economics came together in a practical way. And when I was on the institutional sales desk at some of these firms that you mentioned, I used that marriage of disciplines, law and economics in my work. And I still do to this day. So you said marrying the two And I've never thought of
0: law and capital markets coming together, unless it's a merger and acquisition type deal that's going on. But I remember when I first met you, Mm -hmm. um, I didn't realize just how connected and exceptional you were in your sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed logical to me that when Mr. Gray was looking for someone at the United Negro College Fund, he said he needed an investment guy, and I think you had one conversation with him, right? One. If I'm not mistaken, it was one conversation, one. and Mr. Gray came back to me and Mr. Mr. Store and I, and said that young man Chen Young, we need to get him here. So after uh, Briggs paying UBS, UNCF was your next stop, right? Mm-hmm. And that was to take on overseeing the Gates Millennium Scholars Program and the investment of assets there, humongously successful program. But what was your time like leaving the financial world, if you will, and spending time at UNCF helping that institution to pretty much just manage one of the largest and most prestigious scholarship programs in the world, and then some?
1: So when I joined UNCF in September of 2002, Mm -hmm. the total assets of the organization were about $260 odd million. Mm -hmm. The Gates program was a funding program that was funded annually, meaning they would give the organization the beginning of the academic year, Uh, the organization would spend it as you know, Mm -hmm. and the remaining was levelly amortized over the 12-month period to cover the administration of the program the right. expenses and so on mm-hmm. and at the end of the year that portfolio the gates program would be worse and they'd replenish it so they'd give another in the conversation with mr gray and what a great man he was i I've, i'll never forget in that conversation he, he looked at my cv and said uh he used to call me chen Yong. he said chen Yong. I see you worked on the Hill and you worked with Ed Roybal. I, I said, yes, sir. Um, I, I volunteered, that was my first job in the United States, working as a volunteer on Capitol Hill, which by the way, as a footnote, what is what horrified me um, last year or January 6th, uh, yes. seeing the raid on the Hill, because I felt personally violated having wow. run through the halls in that building. I, that, that's, I, dig- I digress. Anyway, so Mr. Gray uh, said, we have this program. He didn't use the word defeasance, but in describing it, I understood exactly what he meant, meaning they would pay the fifth and so on and so forth. And in that conversation, he said, I want you to eventually, he didn't say then, but he said, eventually, I want you when you're on board to write to the, the benefactors, write to the foundation and ask them to consider moving the assets onto our books. Mm -hmm. Well, what that did was it immediately transformed me and my work and the organization from being purely a scholarship uh, distribution organization. And Mm -hmm. obviously it's one of the most prestigious and great scholarship programs in the world. um, But it transformed it from being scholarship um, allotment to on the, which is the liability side of the program, to also asset management.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and indeed.
1: When they, when they transferred the first tranche in December of 2003, they did it, if you recall, uh, to the extent of about, mm-hmm. in fact, there's a story that goes with this and not many people know. I'm not sure if you know this also when the foundation transferred that first slot, that first allotment, mm-hmm. I received a phone call at six in the morning the next day because the wire had been sent to one of our major banks, but I had set up a sweep structure such that idle cash would not sit not earning interest. It would be swept into these interest-bearing vehicles. Mm-hmm. And the way the wire was constructed it was sent into an account that had the sweep. So when we told the, the, the bank to sweep, right. they swept it, but the wire hadn't in, come into the account as yet. So the account technically looked like an overdraft. Right. And I'll never forget getting a call at six in the morning from um, uh, our representative at that bank saying, Gerald, and I'll never forget these words, there is an overdraft in your account. And the exact words this person used were, please tell me you have clearance from god those are the exact words and then obviously there was no overdraft it was yeah. just a sleep function and i mean there was no yeah, issue yeah, yeah yeah but 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 what i'm getting at is the organization was transformed from administering scholarships again noble as it is, a noble cause one of the great scholarship organizations in the world with worldwide rec- recognition uh it was transformed at that moment to also being a custodian of assets, a premier custodian of assets. Mm-hmm. An organization whose asset management had to be on a par with any of the major pension plans in the world or any of the major endowments or universities or so on. Mm-hmm. But once we, um, once we partnered in to that extent with the Gates Foundation, the organization had transformed and I was happy and humbled to be part of that transformation. And since then of course, um, the organization has grown and the program has been tremendously successful, as you know. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we have received, or at, when I was still at UNCF, there were kudos paid many times to UNCF for the pristineness of the management of the assets. Yes. So much so that we, let's see, I was, a, I was nominated twice by the, the magazine, uh, CIO yes. magazine, the Chief Investment mm-hmm. Officer magazine, um, twice. Uh, the District of Columbia government. Uh, wrote a commendation in the Washington Post, commending uh, the UNCF for its work on the on the asset side. They weren't mm-hmm. addressing the scholarship side. Mm-hmm. The scholarships speak for themselves. We've been doing yep. that, UNCF has been doing that uh, since, since 1940 or whenever it was.
0: 1944, I think, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But what they were doing was praising the fact that we demonstrated the skill and deftness to manage a billion dollars worth of assets commendably and with public recognition. Yes. And my training in economics and law um, were a part of that endeavor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I Sometimes I look back and I see all of the, the scholars and I see things about Gates Millennium. And then knowing in 1998, the goal was to educate 20,000. And I think they have exceeded that. And it's just a, a wonderful program. But I will say, not only just the organization, but that work that you did, it put you on a different level. So now you started serving on advisory boards, investment committees, nationally, internationally, mm-hmm. uh, hanging out with Mr. Larson and others and people like that. Mm-hmm. Was that in the works, or was that as a result of the work you did to elevate uh, the UNCF asset management aspects or were those things just gonna happen anyways?
1: I would, say it's a, I would say it's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. Um, it, managing a portfolio, uh, and as you know, UNCS assets peaked at about $1.2 billion. Mm-hmm. Managing a portfolio, uh, or, well, diff, sorry, managing different types of portfolios within an organization takes a certain unique skill set. And by that I mean, if you take Uh, the balance sheet of any organization, including your great organization now uh, at the University of Central Florida, and you look at the balance sheet and you look at the asset components, you will very likely see that there are some assets that are designated for being cash and cash equivalents or so-called short-term monies. Mm -hmm. There are other assets which could be endowed,
0: Mm -hmm. right,
1: Mm -hmm. and there could be special programs that you run like the ones UNCF ran for the Gates Foundation and others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, the the objective of a short-term investment portfolio and the mandate for those operational funds is very different from the mandate for an endowment and very different from what is technically called a liability-driven investment pool, which is what scholarship programs like the Gates Foundation is.
0: Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. So there's a certain dexterity that one needs to have to manage these three distinct pools of assets. And recognizing that the differentiator between these pools of assets is the associated liabilities. And I hope I'm not being too arcane, but I'll I'll, I'll be very brief on this. Mm -hmm. Your short-term monies run the operations of an organization, payroll, um, utilities, et cetera, et cetera. That's your short-term pool, which means by definition, You could not invest your short-term pool in assets that are illiquid and long-term. Just an intuitive, there's an intuition behind that. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if you're given a mandate by a benefactor, a donor to say, listen, we want you to run this program such that we can administer 20,000 scholarships and per year that boils down to being X amount per year, you have to structure that portfolio with a certain component of what what in technical terms is known as a ladder Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: such that in year one, you can cover these scholarships, year two and so on and so forth, extended over the life of the program. The point is the investments that you do in a short-term portfolio will differ from what you have in that laddered portfolio.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then finally, an endowment. I noticed uh, on your webpage, uh, you acknowledged a recent gift, I forgot the name of the family. Mm-hmm. You, you paid kudos to them for a gift that they made to your university. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if that is an endowed gift or what the purpose is, right. but let's assume it is an endowment. The management of those funds uh, have to be associated with a liability stream that is infinite. Because when, you, when someone endows anything, they make an endowment, any university anywhere in the world, that endowment is meant to last in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. Meaning it is meant to serve the organization forever. Yes, Which means the administration and management of the assets for that pool of assets, for that pool of liabilities is different from the liability pool that I just mentioned.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. It's different from your short-term pool. So in UNCF, we had the amalgamation of those three distinct types of assets. We had short-term assets, We had the LDI, the Liability Driven Investment for the Gates Foundation, and we had an endowment pool. Yes. And the dexterity and skill that we, as staff, working with the other management members, working with the distinct investment committees, if you recall, there were two distinct investment Mm -hmm. committees, Mm -hmm. um, and working with the the, uh, outside consultants and managers and custodians. The skill and dexterity that we had to show, managing these three these three pools of assets under these distinct mandates, is what I think caused the elevation that you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And yes, there was glo- there was there is global recognition. I worked, for example, um, with a major European uh, multilateral based in Geneva, and this is public because they publicized the work that I did with them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's called CERN right, the, the, the European Center for Nuclear Research, you know, they create the God particle,
0: right? right?
1: the Hadron right. Collider, antimatter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But they had a, not had, well, yes, at the time, they had a five and a half billion euro portfolio. And the then CEO, who is a dear friend of mine, um, uh, Theodore Economu is his name, uh, asked me after we met at an event co-chaired in Vienna, we both were asked to co-chair an event in Vienna, and after we co-chaired the event, he said, Gerald, I have an investment committee. Would you please come and speak to the board of CERN and to the board of the investment committee? And by God's good graces, uh, they, they, they flew me out. And the first year I went, I addressed the board and I used exactly the taxonomy I just used with you a while ago. Mm-hmm. Meaning, if you have N different pools of assets, you have to have N different mandates and end different governance structures. Yeah. Now, there can be a superseding governance structure called a board of directors, sure. But for the different pools of assets with their different mandates, it is more efficient if you have those investment committees populated with people that specialize in those areas. Yeah. And so said, so done. And uh, by God's good grace, my good friend, published a piece in the Journal of Finances. And I didn't even know he was doing this. <laughs> in that publication, he acknowledged the work that I and UNCF did uh, with him and his board. Yeah. And so that was the sort of public recognition and elevation you're talking about.
0: Um, yeah. Others
1: include uh, um, some boards I've, I've joined, I've joined quite a few boards, advisory boards, investment committees, and so on. And it continues. And yeah. most recently, I was asked to join yet another, but. Yeah, yeah. But,
0: well, I will tell you something. I'm sitting here looking at you and I'm, I have this big grin on my face because I've sat with you many times before and listened to you explain what you just shared for our audience, which I think is going to be very educational. But have you ever given any thought to being a professor?
1: Interesting, very, very interesting. I actually, I mentioned scholarship at York University in Canada. and mm-hmm. I finished graduate school in England at the LSE, um, the London School of Economics and Political Science. I was offered a scholarship as a teaching assistant at York University.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I did finish my graduate work under a professor called Maya L. Bernstein, who was nominated twice for Nobel, P- Nobel Prize in economics when he mm-hmm. was at the University of Chicago. And I was his teaching assistant. And he would have me sometimes who lectures for his class or a subset of his class. That was my introduction to um, professorship, if you will. Have I considered deepening that involvement? I have, I have. Um, To me,
0: you're a natural adder because you've taught me a lot about the markets. You still advise me to this day on on the markets, but you have an ability to make the complex simple. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a skill that not, not as as only for professors, but you're a practitioner that can do that. Uh, So I think if if, if anything else, I will encourage you because many of our young people today, Mm -hmm. uh, the generations that are coming up, you hear this more and more financial literacy and how the world works, how finance works. I think you might be onto something there, sir, that you could serve generations to come by you just engaging with people on on that level. I think it's a gift that you have. Mm -hmm. Uh, I see that same gift in your siblings, Mm -hmm. but in this space, I think you have a gift that needs to be shared much, much further. And I'm pretty sure from this podcast episode today, People are gonna ask me, "Who is this guy?" I know it. I feel it. I've been doing this, these podcasts now for two years, so I know when I'm gonna get a phone call. But let me ask you this: I want to switch gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, with all of that market and capital markets, economics, monetary policy, that kind of wonky process type of stuff, you actually went to. I'm gonna. I don't. I can't speak French, but is it Le Cordon Bleu? Bleu? Mm-hmm. See, I'm trying to say blue in French. I'm just going to say blue. <laughs> Accord and blue. It, what, was the, what was that kind of, what was that about? What was that little trip about?
1: That's very interesting. But well, first, I also want to pay kudos to you, Gerald. Uh-huh. Uh, I have learned a lot from you as well. Uh, yeah. I remember being in meetings, watching the way you handled the budget and finance matters with the equal skill and deafness that I did the investments.
0: Yes. So I
1: would say it is mutual and complimentary.
0: Thank you, sir, I appreciate that. I'm still trying, um, learning every day.
1: Well, uh, and it shows, and keep it up, please. You Thank set you. a real exam, you're a real exam player. Um, as for the, prof- just to finish on the professorship note, even while I was at UNCF, and not many people know this, I served as a guest lecturer at the G- George Washington University Uh, School of Business um, a few times a semester.
0: I did not know that.
1: Wow. Many people didn't know that. Um, In fact, most didn't. Um, My dear friend was a professor there and he's still a dear friend and um, he would invite me at least a few times uh, to come and hold a lecture for his class and these were seniors about to graduate and I remember I turned the class into a laboratory mm. in this way. I would go to them and I would say, pretend individually or as a group that you are money managers and pretend that I am a prospective investor. So you are the limited partners. I'm going to be a general partner or mm. vice versa. It doesn't matter how you want to structure it. Mm-hmm. I would say to them, prepare a report either on an individual company or a sector and pitch it to me as though you were actually uh, that sector, you were investing in that sector and you wanted me to allocate funds to your fund for investing in that sector. Wow! And that turned out to be, uh, it turned out to be a competition and it was graded and it was tremendously su- successful.
0: Yeah. But you know what? I'm going to say this to you. People say this to me all the time, and, and I just receive it with just thank you and, and move on. But I'm not surprised to hear that you actually were doing those lectures and someone who's a friend, who's a professor saw you and invited you. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes people see in you things that you don't see in yourself, and they see the asset you are to a large larger societal role than you do. So I'll just encourage you, just this little talk today, you and I have been friends for many years, mm-hmm. but just to reconnect with you at this deeper level today um, and hearing it, it just fell in my spirit. So I would encourage you to do that and continue on that path because you have knowledge which people need to hear and experience. So kudos to you there as well. So France, how, how did we get to France? Right.
1: Um, that's very interesting. Um, I was working full-time at Payne-Weber, the brokerage firm. Mm -hmm. Merrill Lynch, Payne-Weber, so on and so forth. And I was on the institutional sales desk. And I was doing that full-time obviously, in production, not in support. I was not in the back office. Mm -hmm. I was on the institutional sales desk, meaning I had my own broker number. I had my own production quotas, et cetera, et cetera. I was in production. And simultaneously at night, I was a law student both for the JD program and then for the LLM program. So here were, what was this? Four, five five years of my life, full-time work, full-time law school at night, reaching home, as we say in Jamaica, at 11 o'clock at night, having to fix dinner, having to read, right? Then Mm -hmm. get up and do it again, every day. Every day, wow. Well, the consequence of that lifestyle is, in one word, summed up as being weight. The type of weight that you gain. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I got up to 255 pounds. And I remember thinking to myself, you can't continue like this. You cannot, you'll drop down. And I said, I need a break. So I went to my then boss, uh, and now the UBS had bought Payne Weber, So the firm had now changed names, right? The giant Swiss bank. And I said, I, am, I, I need to take a break. So I'm taking the summer off uh, with your permission. And he said, fine, right? I had a team of other brokers with me and we had a little unit and they babysat my book as it's called, my book of business. <laughs> and I applied to the school in Paris called Le Cordon Bleu. And the reason I applied to that school is kind of tricky, but you, you of all people understand it. My father was Chinese Jamaican. My mother was Jewish and Haitian. I grew up in a household with the different cuisines of the world. Mm. Chinese cuisine, French cuisine, uh, Jamaican cuisine, Western and so on. And I was drawn to just the culinary spirit. Mm. And I thought if I'm going to take a break, instead of just, I mean, I was too old to go and a knapsack across Europe or some other, <laughs> continent, right? I said, okay, I'm too old to do that. Let me do something constructive. So I applied to this school. Oh, and I'll never forget, interesting side story. Part of the application required a reference. And I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I never worked in a restaurant. I didn't know anything about, I didn't know who was gonna ask for a reference. But one of my neighbors uh, is a gentleman, Was a, he passed away, God bless his soul, called Jose Epstein. Mm-hmm. And Jose Epstein was the treasurer of um, the World Bank and then the IDB in the 1960s, the Inter-American Development Bank. And he and daddy used to work together. Mm. Right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I'll never forget, uh, they used to call him Pepe Epstein. Right? And he also was a professor of development economics at American University which I, of course I take at night on my own voluntarily, just, just, just for the heck of it. Um, but he, so I said, um, he was Chilean. I said, um, Pro- Professor Epstein, would you mind writing a letter of recommendation for me? Right, You're international, you're global, you're a CFO of a multilateral organization, uh, you're multilingual, a reference from you would carry a lot of weight. And he looked at me and he said, maybe. <laughs> tell you what he said, you have to prepare a meal for myself and my wife at your house, and if we enjoy it, then I'll write your recommendation. And so, <laughs> so done. Pepe Epstein and his wife, who's still alive, Sufan, she's still she's still my neighbor, uh, came over, and I made a meal for them. I don't remember what I made, and they wrote the recommendation. I got accepted to the cordon Bleu and I went. And when I went to that school. I learned something which to this day I carry with me. You have to love what you do in life. If you wake up in the morning and your first instinct is, oh bleep, I have to go to work. If that is your first thought or your first instinct, you're in the wrong field. Mm. If you Mm. wake up and you have that feeling, you're doing the wrong thing.
0: Mm.
1: I don't mean to sound colloquial, but you're just doing the wrong things. And that experience at the Cordon blood taught me as hard as I worked, And again, it it was the hardest work I'd ever done in life. I have so much respect for the entire field, culinary field, uh, whether it's cuisine or pastry. I have such respect for the hard work that they do. Mm. And I carry that with me to this day. Mm. And I'll never forget coming back uh, from from France. I wore my uniform as a gag on the plane. And my, uh, my brother picked me up uh at the airport <laughs> he said uh, he, he saw me in the uniform with my trunk with my knives and right from mm-hmm. in one hand and um, my garment bag in the other and he said gerald what happened to you he said look at you i remember saying what and he said look at you i said what he said look how much weight you've lost i did not know i'd lost weight Because when you go to that school, Mm -hmm. you have school six days a week most times. You're on your feet, in the kitchen, in the heat, all day, 7 till 7.30, sometimes 8.30 at night. And going up and down the stairs, because the refrigerations, or all the the refrigeration is downstairs in the basement. You have to go downstairs and you have to get your tray with your ingredients and go back upstairs, and you're in the heat. And... The combination of that hard work in the heat, having to walk everywhere. Um, oh, and and not eating. That's another thing. Because when you work in a cooking school like that and you make fancy meals all day long, you have an aversion to food. You don't want that food anymore. Yeah. You just don't. So I, 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 yeah. I, I, just, I, I didn't eat any fancy food. Yeah, yeah. I had a very sort of parsimonious diet. And the combination of the hard work, the heat the walking exercise and the lack of the appetite caused me to lose about 30 pounds. Wow. And, um, since then I've kept, I've kept it off mostly. And, um, again, I, I ascribe part of my personality and zeal for life to that little lesson that I learned. You have to love what you do. And you know, it's something interesting.
0: And I told you, and I was going to run really fast because we have about eight minutes left, but you just said something pointedly. That is a question I ask of all of my guests. So I'm going to ask you to expound on what you just said. Because what I've asked my guests before we end each interview is to share words of inspiration and hope. We're in a time right now where we just ended up, not ended, we're coming through a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our, everything seems topsy turvy, you know, social media. If, you, if you're so ingrained in it, it takes over your whole psyche. People, there's a sense of, you know, I'm at this station in life, I won't make it to another. Those that are already wealthy, they become wealthier. Those that are poor, become poorer. The middle class is dissipating. So there's a general sense that there is a lack of hope. Mm-hmm. But you just said something that you must love what you do. Mm-hmm. Can you expound on that and turn that into kind of a a moment of inspirational thought to people who are listening to this podcast? Because that's one of the things that people look forward to quite a bit.
1: Um, The ancient Persians have a saying, right? And this too shall pass. It's as simple as that, mm. we are in a, we're in a rough patch, the pandemic, as you say, war and the threat of war, um, division, whether it's political or, or social or economic and so on. But I, I always try and find the good and the best in people. Mm. You know, one of my neighbors owns an art gallery in Georgetown, another neighbor. He says, "Girl, you're always optimistic. I always try and find a silver lining because it always exists. It exists in circumstance and it exists in people. Seek it out. I'll go back to the intern at UNCF. I pushed that vision knowing that I saw in him that he had more in him than he was giving. And I knew in the Caribbean, we are trained to push and push and be hard and not accept mediocrity. Mm -hmm. And it it may have seemed caustic sometimes, harsh, as you said, tough love. But I knew that he would shine. And every time I speak to or I I had a chance to speak with students, I would look for that light in their eyes. Mm. When something goes off, they hear something, they learn something, they get inspired by something. I love seeing that light in the eye. And that comes from the belief, knowing that things will get better. Mm. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. I think. I think. I, you know.
0: I spend a lot of time with. Uh, I work at an institution with young, brilliant minds. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at my fifth institution, and one of the things that I've noticed is we don't give young people enough credit. Mm-hmm for understanding the world that they live in and how they're envisioning, how they will change it in the future. So that's so well said. I wanna, in the remaining time that we have, I'm gonna ask you a question. I know you're gonna laugh. When is the last time you had sangtong soup?
1: (laughs) 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 So sangtong is that classic Cantonese soup. Yeah. which we used to have together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, that restaurant is closed. So I think the last time was with you.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a long time ago, but that was, you know, the the mark of friendship is competition and breaking bread, right? And I tell some, you're going to laugh when I say this. We had our competitions about who would finish the crossword puzzle first every day, um, the Washington Post crossword puzzle. And then we used to go and play racquetball. Yes, I remember yes. Um, and I was telling some of my children that, you know, don't don't sleep on Uncle Gerald. You know, Uncle Gerald is an athlete. (laughs) But you know, friendship and relationships are are what's key. And I'll tell you the relationships that I've had with you, your, your brother, your family in general has been has been one of the I would say hallmarks of Sharon and I and our children. Um a social construct, if you will. And we're eternally grateful for that. The last question I'll ask you with the time that we have. Sorry for
1: interrupting, sorry for interrupting. And vice versa, by the way. Yeah, oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. family nexus and closeness. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Auntie
1: Auntie Sharon, as I call her. Yes, Auntie
0: Sharon, that's (laughs) right, that's right. So I always give my guests the last word. Anything on your heart, anything on your mind, other than the questions that I've asked that you would want to share. The whole point of this podcast is to inspire young people. I hear more from young people and believe it or not, grandparents a lot, Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's all about inspiring people for them to look at their station in life and look to people like yourselves and say, wow, if he got from point A to point B, I can do it as well. What's on your heart and your mind that you'd like to share to close us out today?
1: Relationships. Yesterday, I received a call from my nursery school teacher at Hillel Hillel Academy, nursery school. Wow, wow. I'm talking about, I was, what, three and a half, four years old. She was calling, and her name, God bless her, uh, still a dear friend, 50 years later. She was calling because she knew that Anna was from Europe. And she confused or she forgot that that Anna was from Serbia, not the Ukraine. Mm. So here she was calling out of care and concern, thinking that Anna was from the Ukraine in light of the war going on. And the reason I brought that up is to show the relationships that are deep.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: And they run deep. You and, I, you and I have known each other since teenage years, mm-hmm. right? So that is what? 40 odd years. Yes. Vicky knew me when I was four years old. So that's 50 years. Mm-hmm. And I can go through and point to, our we have so many mutual friends that we have known equally long.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Relationships are key. They're the bedrock of you, your life, everything that you do. Yeah. And the only thing I'll end with, end with is, a point that sounds slightly awkward. Your relationship with yourself. I go back to loving what you do. Mm. I say to my beloved nephew, you be you. Always. When I talk to a young person and I see a little diffidence or angularity or doubt, self-doubt. I say, look here, you be you. Mm. Just, just yeah. be start this off, as we say in Jamaica. Yeah. Start this up."
0: Start us up. It's funny you say that because Sharon has this phrase she uses with the children and me. Uh, do you, babe? <laughs> do you, babe? Do you, babe? Well, Gerald, I told you an hour would run up, run past very quickly, and there's so much more we could talk about. Our time at U N C F, our trips to Boston. to visit Money Managers for UNCF and that that wonderful crossword puzzle word, Alta Cat Cat Iron. Uh, The the guests will probably wonder what we're talking about, but we're both laughing on the inside. My friend, it was a pleasure spending this time with you, and I'm so humbled that you chose to join and share your story. I can tell you, as I said earlier, the, um, the ones that I get calls on or texts on and actually have me try to connect people with permission. It, it, this is one that's going to be just like that. Uh, thank you for your authenticity. And thank you for your candor. And also just being who you are, just being Gerald Chen Young.
1: And, and I you, appreciate
0: all that you do and, and what you mean to so many people. And, and keep doing what you're doing, sir. Uh, we're all watching.
1: And Gerald, to you as well, continue being a light because that's what you are, a beacon. Don't stop. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Sure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've just spent an hour
0: with my good friend Gerald Chen Young. I hope something was said, something was shared, even the economics lesson that we got today. I hope you now understand a little bit about how money works, how money is managed, or quite frankly, you know, being yourself. So until next week, remember this is It's Easy Son, your life lessons on your journey to your purpose. And until next week, be safe, And remember, it's not where you are, it's where you're going. Take care and have a great week.